This is the Sunday when we remember and think about Jesus coming into Jerusalem, riding on the back of a young colt. His disciples and many others laid down a carpet filled with their clothes, their outer garments, as well as palm branches that they put down. And when Jesus came in, they generally embraced him as a king. In fact, they called him king. And they yelled out, Hosanna, which means save now. The mystery in all of that, though, is that how a couple of days later, the same crowds turned right back around and cried out for him to be crucified over and over again. Crucify him. Crucify him. What happened? How do you go from saying you're the king, save now, to put him to death, put him to death? Sometimes we try to answer that question just from the narrative of him coming into Jerusalem that day. But I want to suggest to you that you got to go a little bit further down the road to really appreciate and perhaps fuller, have a fuller understanding of why they crucified Jesus. So I want you to turn to Luke chapter 19. And let's go a little bit further into the story than we probably, uh, than we normally do. And look at where Jesus goes once he gets there. So Luke chapter 19, and I want to pick up the reading in verse 45. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, before we read any further, um, if you look at the other gospel accounts of Jesus' triumphal entry, you get a, a better rounded picture of what's happening here. For instance, if you read Matthew's account in chapter 21 and Mark's account in chapter 11, you discover that Jesus, in cleansing the temple, literally overturns the tables of the money changers. Now, money changers were there because you have people from all over the Roman Empire, Jews from all over the Roman Empire, who are coming to the temple. Remember in 580 BC, Nebuchadnezzar ransacked Jerusalem, and the people were exported, deported out to the then uh, Babylonian Empire, now has become the Roman Empire. So people are coming from everywhere, they have their foreign money with them, they have to exchange it to get the shekel to pay the temple tax. Jesus also overturns the, the tables where they sold the animals for sacrifice, and the animals were there as well, from what we can tell. If you go to the Gospel of John in chapter 2, you read of another time, though it seems very similar, earlier on when Jesus did the same thing, except in that description, it says in John 2 that he made a whip of cords. See, this picture of Jesus not the meek, lowly, gentle, humble Jesus coming on the colt of a donkey, but the fierce, almost violent, righteously angry Jesus who takes this whip and literally turns things over and chases them out, all the while rebuking them. It's quite a contrast in pictures in Jesus' life and ministry and how we understand him. So keep that in mind, and let's go back to the text. Verse 47. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. 
Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. Chapter 20, verse 1. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? Now, to understand the passage, we have to then understand the temple where all this is happening. And while the Jews worshipped in synagogues spread throughout the Roman Empire, there was only one place that they could actually really meet God, and that was the temple. In fact, there were only two things that could happen in the temple. Couldn't happen anywhere else. At the temple was the place where you brought your sacrifices, and at the temple is where you truly were able to come into the presence of God. Now, let me qualify that by saying that obviously God is everywhere at once. But in those days, God was most resident, God was most present in the temple itself, in the Holy of Holies behind the veil. I want us to get a clear picture of this. So there's a model of the the whole area of Jerusalem and the temple in in Jerusalem itself these days. I've seen it many times. This is the outer courts, right? Then you have the inner courts, the court of the men, the court of the women. And then you go into this building here. It's a replica from what we have in the Bible. You go through this, and inside are the various utensils and utilities for worshiping God. And then beyond that is the veil. And beyond the veil is the holy of ho- what's called the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant, which represents the very glory of God. No one is allowed in that chamber, in that section, except for the high priest and only once a year. And when he goes in there, he makes atonement for the sins of the nation and for his own sins as well. And it's a unique and special way that he has to do it. He has to wear special garments. And on the hem of the outer garment were woven in these little golden bells, and they alternated with yarn, uh, beautiful purple and reddish yarn that formed little pomegranates. So a bell, a pomegranate, a bell, a pomegranate, all the way around approximately 72 of these. These little golden bells would make noise so that when the priest goes in, the other priest can hear his movement within the Holy of Holies. And in a sense, they can be with him there as they sense what he's doing next as he's uh, taking the incense and making, you know, spraying the blood over the horns, the altar, except, or uh, there on the um, uh, Ark of the Covenant making atonement for the sins of the people. They sense that. And they're kind of with him and praying. They know when he's going in. They know when he's coming out. And according to Jewish tradition, he would also have a rope tied to his ankle in case he died in there. Then they could pull him out because no one can go in except for the high priest, but that's tradition. By the way, a couple of years ago, when Marsh and I were in Jerusalem, we met through the help of a dear friend of ours, a uh, leading archaeologist who happened to unearth and discover one of those little bells next to the Temple Mount. I want to show a picture of it to you. And you can see the little hoop right here where it would then be sewn in. Now, is that bell from the garment of the high priest himself? Can't say for sure, but likely it is. Pretty amazing, isn't it? That you would discover this in, in all of that ruin. It doesn't prove the Bible, but it certainly helps, helps us 
you know, have a sense of the veracity of, of God's word, which we believe by faith and many other evidences as well. Well, all of that to kind of give us a picture of the temple, this place where the people go and make their sacrifices to God. You say, well, why all the sacrifices in the Old Testament? Why all the animals? Why all the blood? What is that all about? Why is that so necessary? Tim Keller, in uh, describing this, gives kind of a good illustration for us. He says, imagine Israel. Think of Israel geographically. It's a land bridge. He says it separates two types of religion, the religion of the East and the religion of the West. Eastern religion, then and to a large degree now, views God, or their concept of God, as one who is absolute but not personal. God in Eastern religion is seen as a force. How many of you have ever seen Star Wars? A force is with you, right? Western religion, think about Greek and Roman mythology. God, or the gods, are very personable, not absolute, corrupt. They squabble with each other. They get married to human beings. They come and they go. They live and they die. In the middle of all that, God reveals himself. And when God reveals himself, he reveals himself as transcendent and yet imminent, personal and yet holy. And God who creates us said in those days, I want you to the Israelites particularly, I want you to come to me. There is a meeting place called the temple. You are to approach me in a prescribed way. All of you except one can come into my proximity, but you can't just come in. You have to approach me and you have to approach me with all these sacrifices because there's a problem. The problem between you and me is sin. And I can't just ignore that. I want you to imagine me for a moment, a single mom who's raising her son. She works two jobs because she's trying to save money so that he'll be able to go to college. The day finally comes for him to go to college and she packs the minivan with all this stuff and they drive away to school and there she unpacks him and settles him in and she goes to the local bank and she opens up an account and deposits all the money she's earned to pay for his education and for his living expenses. She kisses him goodbye and drives the long journey home in tears because that's her only son. For the next several months, there are all kinds of emails and texts and phone calls between mother and son. And he keeps telling his mom how wonderful school is, how much he enjoys the classes, how great his professors are. And he found this nice little church and on and on it goes. Then all of a sudden, nothing. No communication whatsoever. Mother gets concerned. She gets a phone call from the college and the college says to her, I want you to know, Mrs. Smith, that your son has never once attended any of his classes. Uh-oh. But he's been enjoying the savings account. He's been living a high life, having a, having a grand old time. Then one day there's a knock at the door. And she answers the door and there's her son. Hasn't heard from him for a long time has a big smile on his face, gives his mom a hug, and walks right into the living room and says, Mom, you know something? That bank account's getting empty. Need to put some money in there. 
Now, I want you to imagine that you're that single mom. How many of you would say, oh, Sonny, it's so good to have you home. I love you so much. Sure, no problem. How much do you want me to put in there for you? How many of you would do that? Probably none of you. How many of you would be just a little upset? Probably all of us, right? I love my son, but there's a day of reckoning now. I love my son, but you're going to have to tell me what you did and why you did it, and there better be some repentance, and there better be some payback. Because I work my finger to the bones to provide for you. In a sense, the same thing is true with God. God says, you've gone and spent it all. You have sinned against me. You are born sinful. You're the children of those creatures I made. Adam and Eve who rebelled against me. The problem is we can't pay God back. The Bible says that the consequences, the wages of sin is death. And we can't die for ourselves or we're eternally separated from God. Therefore, God says, you can't approach me. You're unholy. Therefore, I'm going to give you the law as guardrails to live your life by. But the law is not going to save you. It's just going to show you how guilty and condemned you are. So I'm going to give you sacrifices, prescribed sacrifices, that you must make in order to be accepted by me temporarily. But all those sacrifices... Don't change your condition. In the book of Hebrews chapter 10, we have kind of an amplification of this. I want to read to you what it says, beginning in verse 1. It says, The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under the system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they never were able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. If they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped. For the worshipers would have been purified once for all time, and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. But instead, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year. For it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's not possible for the blood of all those animals to take away your sins. Now let's go back to the temple. Jesus is cleansing the temple. He's getting rid of the money changers, the people who are selling the animals, and the animals themselves. Why? Because it was illegal and wrong for them to be there? Yes and no. First of all, there had to be people who were able to exchange the money so that you would have your shekel to pay the temple tax. And there also had to be animals, because people are coming from hundreds and hundreds and thousands of miles away. There's no way you're going to be able to bring an animal with you. If the animal's blemished or sick, you can't sacrifice it. So you buy it there. But here's the problem. They had moved the business of the temple, so to speak, from the periphery into the interior. Those animals should have been sold on the outside. The exchange should happen on the outside, and it should all have been very fair and equitable. Instead, it was brought right into the temple courts themselves, and it was very unfair, and and it was not equitable. People were being taken advantage of. The whole thing had become a business. And the sense of reverence and communion with God was gone. Let me give you an illustration. It would be like having vendors in our service for the entire 60 minutes, walking around. Get your coffee here. Hey, folks, get your coffee. It's going to be a long sermon today. Get your coffee. 
Anybody need change for the offering? Anybody need to break a bill for the offering? Break the bill for the offering. Can you imagine? I mean, talk about cheap. Right? <laughs> Must be a Dutch audience. Anyway, if you're Dutch, so am I. That was a personal joke, all right? Can you imagine doing that for 60 minutes? I mean, how could we possibly have worship? How could you hear the message? How could we sing with all this commotion going on? What would happen is you would just say, forget it, I'm not going there. I don't want to be part of that. But, you know, back in those days, they didn't have that option. You have to go to the temple. That's where those, those things happen. And it was unlike today where people go about 1.4 times a month to church. <laughs> back then, you just, you had to go. You had to do it. And so it just became a business. You went through the motions and you left. It was hard to really commune with God. So when Jesus cleanses the temple out, he does so because he says, I want my house to be, and the question is to be what? Now, I want it to be a place of modern worship with drums and guitars and keyboard. I want it to be a place with a grand organ and orchestra and hymns. I want it to be a place of expositional preaching. That's the one I think it should be. Didn't say any of that doesn't say anything about that. When you go back to the text in Luke chapter 19, he says, I want my house to be a house of what? Prayer. Prayer. I want my house to be a house of what? Prayer. Prayer. What kind of prayer? Praise, repentance, longing, celebration, joy, communion. Yes, all those things. Because prayer, prayer is intimate. Prayer assumes communication. Prayer is responding to God who's spoken to us first in his word. And prayer is about as intimate as you can be with God. And Jesus says, that's, that's what this place is supposed to be about. But how can it be like that when it's so crowded with business and noise going through rituals rather than sincerity. But let's talk a little bit about the temple. Because the temple that we're talking about here in this text isn't the second century temple that was destroyed in 70 AD, nor is it this building that we come into. Where does God reside today? Where's this temple today? Look what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Would you read it aloud with me? Don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you? Oh, my goodness. Individually, collectively, that's why we come together. The power of God's presence living in all of us in unity together. God's temple today is dwelling place. Today is your life. Paul says to Romans chapter 8, verse 15, so you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you receive God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba Father. So when I accepted Christ, God's spirit came into the temple. That's a mystery to me. You know, you grab your arm, grab your hand, somehow in here, some way, God lives. Spirit lives. Mystery of mysteries. But we don't think about it very often. We only think about ourselves living here, but this is where God lives. And God God, listen, wants to cleanse your temple too and my temple as well. What is the possibility that maybe your temple and my temple, this temple of God, has become too busy to hear God, to commune with God, to be with God? 
You ever thought about that? Is your temple filled with noise right now? So much noise that you can't really be with God and God can't really be with you. You can't hear him, he can't hear you. What kind of noise am I talking about? I'm talking about relational noise. You know, all the stuff, relationships, all the drama of relationships. I'm talking about financial noise, all the concerns about money and making money and saving money, investing money and in, a, in the Western culture, the capital, capitalistic uh, uh, economy, you know, it's all about having more and getting more. All the noise of anxiety and worry and fear. I mean, sometimes it's so noisy in the temple that we wake up at 2 and 3 a.m. with all that noise clanging there. There's hardly ever time when it's still. And we know God and God knows us and we have that deep communion. Sometimes we get so busy in, in God's temple even, listen, even with God's work. Is your temple too busy? Does, does the Lord need to come in and cleanse the temple and move some stuff out? Does God have the right to come into your life and my life and rearrange the temple furniture? Years ago, when Marsh and I first started the ministry, we uh, were pastoring in a small country church. I've told you about it before, on the edge of town. Dilapidated building, it was terrible. Uh, in the summer, we'd get bats in there, and I'd have to kill the bats, can you imagine? Before people came in to worship, they'd be hanging sometimes underneath the pew. And uh, yeah, anyway, I never let anybody know that, and that's, that's not an exaggeration. Uh, and it just, there was no air conditioning, no hot water. There was a dairy farm next door. If you open the windows, the flies were in. It was just horrible. Finally, we raised enough money to, to remodel the entire place. It was exciting. We had air conditioning, yay. Screens on the windows, yay. And a new carpet, but this one thing we couldn't change, that were the pews. The pews were these long, heavy, blonde kind of wood with, with like this pink vinyl padding for the seats. Just uglier in sin. I mean, just ugly. And uh, a small little worship center, maybe sat 100 at the most, and, and everything was just facing straight forward. And then, you know, back in those days, you had giant pulpits, right? So I, had, I call it the tank, right? A big pulpit kind of almost wrapped around me. And behind me were what I, as a kid, I always thought of as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit chairs, right? The three chairs, the, you know, and the, the one in the middle is always the biggest, right? And, and it, it just, I don't know, I just got this idea one day that I was going to go in now that we remodeled and rearranged the pews. So I gathered my staff, which consisted of our custodian, my assistant pastor, and the secretary known as I, me, and myself, <laughs> and uh, unbolted all those pews. It took me all day and all night. And I unbolted them all, and I turned them all on a bit of an angle like the pews are on the outside over here. Right? Not that extreme, but on a bit of an angle and, and got them to kind of come in so that there's you know, a, a little less sense of formality, more of a sense of family and, and unity and you know, just, just kind of break up the rigidity of it. And I moved the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit chairs off uh, and I put just a couple of simple chairs there because it was just normally me on the stage anyway. I used to lead singing back then, believe it or not. That is frightening to think about. 
I told, uh, uh, I told Dr. Dave uh, in our traditional service about that, and he, he said, I won't preach, you don't lead singing. I said, okay, that's a deal, all right? Uh, and then the next Sunday, I waited excitedly for everybody to come in, and everybody came in and hardly anybody noticed except two women, organist, pianist, who happen to also be the church bosses. You know, every church has those, right? <laughs> or at least some people who think they are. And I'm telling you, if looks could kill, I'd have been dead. I could have burned pages of the Bible and been in less trouble than I was for angling those pews and turning those, or, and moving those chairs off. Man, did I get an earful. Who gave you the permission to do that? God. <laughs> <laughs> I had prayed about it, I think. <laughs> I learned that lesson early on in marriage, by the way. I don't know if you've been so foolish, but I, I like to change things up. You probably know that by now, and it's probably why some of you love me so much. But anyway, um, I, uh, we had a little apartment, and, and Marsha would be at work. I'd come home early from studies, and I just like to rearrange furniture. And I found out that... I needed permission to do that. <laughs> Anybody else know what I'm talking about? Don't touch that. Don't move that. Why'd you do that? That doesn't go there. Now, here's the question I want to ask you. Does God need permission in your life to rearrange the furniture? So I want to tell you something. He loves changing up the furniture. Let me give you examples. Like, for instance, have you ever noticed that God sometimes likes to change things up geographically in your life? And if not in your life, in your children's or grandchildren's life, he, surely, he certainly has done that in our lives. I don't always like it, to be honest with you. Sometimes he changes things up in our health. Sometimes he changes the furniture up financially. Sometimes he changes the furniture up in our church life. Sometimes he changes the furniture up in our emotional life. Sometimes he takes away furniture. It's like, where did that go? Why did you take that away? And other times he adds furniture, and you're like, where did that come from? I don't want that in my life. I don't want that in my temple, in my house. But God says, ultimately, I want to set the stage. I want to be in charge of my own house of my own temple, and I want you to let me do it, and I don't want you to argue and complain. I want you to accept it, because it's my house. You're my temple. Does he have that freedom today in your life, in your marriage, in your families, with your children, with his church? But I want you to take this a step further with me, because, listen, ultimately, we're not... <laughs> I want, it sounds like I'm contradicting myself with the scriptures. That's not what I mean. But ultimately, we're not the temple. Ultimately, the temple is Jesus. The temple within the temple. Think about that. Think about it when he cleanses the temple. And he gets rid of the, the animal sellers and all the animals. It's almost like a statement in which he is saying, I am now going to be the final sacrifice you're not going to need any more of these. You don't need the temple shekel because I'm going to purchase your salvation with my blood. 
priceless. And if the temple is that place where we come face to face with God, didn't Jesus say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? And can you get any closer to God than to be in relationship with Christ himself? Ultimately, he's the temple. And that's why they crucify him. When he comes in and says, in essence, I'm the new temple. You can tear that temple down. But in three days, it'll be raised up again. He's talking about himself. And I have the authority, and that's why they crucified him. Because they thought they were the temple keepers, the temple guards. They thought they had religion figured out. They had a monopoly on God. They had the system down. And Jesus comes in and throws it all out the door and says, nope, it's all about me. You want it, God? You got to want me. You want to know God? You have to know me. Because I've made the way. And that's why when you go back to Hebrews uh, chapter 10, you have these other verses, powerful verses. Verse 4. For it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That is why when Christ came into the world, he said to God, you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings, but you have given me a body to offer. You are not pleased with burnt offerings or other offerings for sin. Then I said, look, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written about me in the scriptures. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. For by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. And when sins have been forgiven, there is no need to offer any more sacrifices. Amen, that's right. There's no need. I love the last words of Jesus on the cross. It is finished. The debt is paid access into my presence. And so as we come to the end of our series at the cross, one last time, it is time to take off that pack of self-effort, that pack of fear and worry and performance, and do I measure up and am I good enough? Have I done enough for God to love me and accept me? And realize it has nothing to do with that whatsoever. God says, leave at the cross all that effort. Accept my effort, what I've done for you. In a place of all your effort, I'm giving you my amazing grace. And it's so freeing. Amazing grace. Amazing grace frees us from all our own efforts and attempts to measure up. Amazing grace forgives us all our sins that God sees us as though we're sinless. Amazing grace gives us the endurance to persevere in this life that can be hard sometimes. Amazing grace reminds us that even though I see the magnitude of my sins on the cross, I see the beautiful worth and value of my life because God gave himself for me. Amazing grace frees me up to know I can serve God. Amazing grace reminds me I'm adopted. I'm a co-heir with Christ. Amazing grace. That's why the cross 
is so precious and important to us who are his followers. It is the symbol. It is the symbol of our relationship and connection with God. Let's pray. Father God, as we come to the end of this series, we want to thank you for the cross, that place where we were made right with you through the death of your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. That place of absolutely amazing grace that cannot be earned, that is not deserved, but is bestowed on us because you are a God of love. Lord, I pray that you would help us now to take these truths that we have learned and to live them out, Lord, to live out and to enjoy the benefits of the cross. And God, I pray that the things of this world, the allurements of this world, the philosophies, the religions, the efforts of this world would just fade into rubbish before us, God, that we would just pay no attention to them. But we would embrace who you are and what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.